Hi everyone and welcome to Teeth and Tales. I'm your host Dr. Shadi Manicherry and today's episode is all about dental anxiety. My guest today is Dr. Natalie Bradley who is currently undertaking her specialist training in special care dentistry working with patients with impairment or disability. Dr. Bradley qualified from Newcastle University and she has experience working in dental practice, community and hospital dentistry. She's also completed a year's fellowship with the Office of the Chief Dental Officer. She's a dental blogger, personal coach for young dentists, and an NHS clinical entrepreneur. In today's episode, we discuss some causes of dental anxiety, as well as treatment options we have to address this issue. These treatment modalities range from simple breathing exercises all the way to general anaesthetic, Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited about today's episode because I think the topic is so relevant and perhaps not as widely covered as, as some of the other topics. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do and how you got to be um, here now? Of course. Um, so I am doing my specialist training in special care dentistry. Um, which is the field of dentistry where we um, work with and manage patients who have additional impairments or disability. Um, and that can be everything ranging from people with dental phobia to people with learning disabilities, to people with physical disabilities, mental health problems, um, social problems. So it's a really uh, wide ranging specialty. Um, and I think the reason why I love my specialty is I do all sorts of dentistry on my patients. So I do anything that they need, but also I really help people who find it difficult to access care and um, be able to manage and cope with dentistry. So you have to kind of think a little bit outside the box. Um, I got exposed to these groups of patients when I was doing my core training year in hospital and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so um, I spent another few years working in the community and community dental services before deciding yes this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. Perfect and could you tell us a little bit about the kind of patients that you see day to day and what kind of treatments they need? Um, so I kind of every day is is different in social care dentistry mm-hmm. um, which I absolutely love so um, it's not for everybody but I love the variety that special care dentistry is able to offer um, so depending on where I am I work at um, a few different places uh, for example I work at a hospital that is a hospital for patients who have brain injuries so that hospital we are seeing patients who are um, at different stages of their rehabilitation journey. So that could be, you know, if they've had a stroke, they've been in a car accident, and because they've got low levels of consciousness and they can't open their mouths, they don't cooperate. Um, I also see patients who um, need sedation for other reasons. So it might be um, in a different hospital work where they're very, very anxious and can't cope with the idea of having dentistry while they're fully conscious. Uh, so um, we offer sedation, different types of sedation for them. It might be inhalation sedation. It might be intravenous sedation, intranasal sedation, which is my favourite, or a combination um, of different types of sedation. And um, also, we do I do a day a week working in general anaesthesia, so patients who might either have who are, might be phobic and they have a lot of treatment need, or they might have a learning disability, or might have a cognitive issue, 
do like dementia um, and so we see these patients and, and do their dentistry while they're asleep. We also go out on see patients at home and um, people who are unable to access getting to a dentist in the first place and um, we do domiciliary visits going out to care homes to deliver care, making dentures, doing screening. Um, so yeah, I could, I could go on for a long time about my typical yeah. week. No, no week is typical. <laughs> yeah, of course, there's a lot of different things that you treat. And I think that's the beauty of special care dentistry. It can be anything from medical disability to anxieties and things like that. Did you have a particular moment in your career where you sort of realized that this is what I want to do? Was there a particular patient that you treated that made you realize this is the specialty that you were interested in Mm -hmm. yes yeah um I do tell this story a lot because I think actually finding out the why behind you want to do something is really really important and it's really interesting to learn about other people's whys and why they've gone specific routes and often that can be with one patient interaction um so what triggered my interest in special care because I wasn't really aware of it before um I didn't, it wasn't really included as part of our undergraduate curriculum in a whole lot of detail. Um, mm-hmm. but, but when I was working in a, um, a walk-in emergency clinic, um, I saw a patient who was homeless. And it was the first person, person I'd ever encountered in a dental setting who was homeless. And he had a raging toothache, like really bad, self-medicating, drugs and alcohol to manage it. But mm-hmm. he'd already been to see three other people three of the dentists before coming to the walk-in clinic um, and, and each one um, refused to see him for whatever reason whether it's because he was homeless or he couldn't pay or, um, and his treatment wasn't particularly difficult but just being that person to say I'm going to treat you it's not necessarily the clinical dentistry that I provided which is straightforward it was the actual gratification of being someone who's open-minded and willing and, and um, humane enough for inclusive enough to be able to say that I'm going to treat you um, and that might have been the setting I was working at but actually I really that patient interaction made me think why is somebody um, who's not actually that difficult to treat and not mm-hmm. able to access basic, basic health care in a city like London where there's dentists growing out of our ears um, dental hospitals lots of clinics um, why can't that person access basic health care and then that kind of made me look into special care dentistry more and that's what led me to getting my community job and it kind of all snowballed from that (laughs) no definitely I I've done my fair share of hospital posts and I think you get exposed to a wide range of people that you might not necessarily maybe not even know how to treat and in practice and primary care so I think having that training definitely opens your eyes to a wider range of um, patients that you could be treating um so Obviously, your job, I can imagine it being quite stressful dealing with lots of different things and having to know quite a lot, because I think treating dental conditions with patients who have medical complications, you actually need to know a lot about these medical conditions. Um, How do you deal with the the stress and the workload that that I imagine you having? Uh, That's a really good question. I think that... uh, when you have patients who have so much going on in their life, it's really hard not to take that home with you. Um, exactly. So it's at what point do you say, stop retelling the story of this poor lady who's got, had this condition or had something happen to her that has resulted in a severe disability. Um, and I think it's trying to say, okay, I'm home now. I'm not going to think about this. Um, and leaving, you know, wiping metaphorically kind of wiping your feet at the doorstep when you come home. Um, 
but a lot of these patients need a lot of planning to go into their care it's not like when I used to work in practice you, your patient turns up you do their treatment they're happy they go it's it's a lot of build up and work up and all of that work up into liaising with their GP with the other medical professionals with their social care or their carers now we have to organize COVID swaps for our patients as well in some cases so it's a it's a lot of organization and it's working together as a team that's really important and having the support while you're at while you're in a setting like a hospital or a community clinic, thankfully there's some great support networks around with you and um, someone to ask when things don't go to plan or how do you get around things and creating those links. So in our hospital, it's often a two-way thing where you might have a medical specialty, the haematologist refer you a patient who needs a pre-assessment before they start their bisphosphonates for their myeloma, um, but equally they want your input, but equally on the other side if you needed to treat them they'd also very happily tell you oh they need this this sort of cover or you need to give them an infusion of platelets beforehand or whatever so it's it's a two-way thing and it's all about communication I think really good communication yeah absolutely I remember I did my dental core training in pediatrics and I was in charge I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Evelina Children's Hospital um, mm -hmm. so I was in charge of treating the children under general anesthesia so once a week we would have um, a, a GA list where we had four or five patients on the list severely medical medically compromised children and it was my job to sort of get them ready for their treatment and I remember it was so stressful and it's actually a lot of responsibility for you to be in charge of chasing all their medical background making sure all of the specialists involved in their care were happy for them to have the general anesthesia and also the treatment um, the dental treatment that was associated with it so it can be quite stressful actually definitely but I think if you you get a, a bigger idea of what healthcare is like in general for these patients and how dentistry and oral health fits into their care. So as you say, if they've already really um, got a lot of medical problems and they have to come to the hospital for this thing and this thing and this thing, you can have it, you have a better empathy with the patient's parents or the patient themselves when actually they're quite anxious for the hospital because they've got bad memories of coming there or they have to take more time off school to be able to bring to another appointment. Um, so I think, it, yeah, it's stressful, but you get a good kind of overall knowledge of healthcare and the, and the world of medicine as well as dentistry. Yeah, definitely. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be sort of uh, keep up to date with our medical colleagues because obviously you're put on the spot. So dentistry itself is quite difficult, but for you to then have to know details about their medical conditions is actually a lot of work. And I remember I used to stay up and read about all these weird and wonderful conditions just to make sure I, I was prepared in the team because there's a lot of sort of multidisciplinary team meetings and you don't want to be the person that doesn't know things about a condition. Let's talk about dental anxiety in particular, because I think that's the one thing that uh, is relatively very common. And we see a lot of patients suffering with dental anxiety, whether it's in primary care, like general practice, or in hospitals. So the severe cases would have to be uh, referred to, to hospitals. So can we talk a little bit about the causes of dental anxiety and, and even dental phobia? Um, yes, I think actually when you see someone with a phobia or an anxiety, asking them some specifics about what what might have caused it or what is around is always a good question to ask although you don't want to 
bring up particularly bad memories that can make the situation worse for the patients um, yeah. but yeah but I think most a lot of the anxieties I see in adults um come around a bad experience um in childhood and um, mm-hmm. this, this the story of the gas man the you know when I was a kid they came with me at the sweet smelling gas and knocked me out and pulled a load of my teeth out um which mm-hmm. we don't do anymore because no one does nitrous oxide GA in in practice anymore um but I feel like that has a not has had a knock-on effect in a certain generation of the patients I see and um, that makes them really highly phobic um and often sometimes with, with those patients um you're once you build a relationship with one once they start trusting you you're um modalities to help manage their anxiety become less and less invasive from having to sedate them every time they have their treatment to maybe convert them to inhalation sedation to maybe trying a few things without any sedation at all um so in terms of treating a phobia um it's difficult we're not set up really in the same way of treating as as treating a disease we're very used to treating the dental disease but often um, when we treat patients under general anaesthetic or sedation, it just allows them to have their dental treatment. It doesn't really um, actually treat a phobia. But some other people have phobias from other reasons. Um, a lot of my patients who are on the autism spectrum or some learning disabilities are very hypersensitive and very generally anxious to a lot of things, not just dentistry, any sort of medical intervention or stranger or someone in a uniform. Um, so that is, you know, when you come around and having climatization as part of your management. Um, I've even seen patients who've had phobias from PTSD, from other things, from assault, from rape, that which is really, really heartbreaking. Um, mm-hmm. But there's lots of causes uh, from phobias. And, you know, mental health is something that we thankfully are more open to having conversations about. Um, but of course, that has a huge impact on whether patients have um, dental anxieties or not as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think previous bad experience, I would have to agree with you, is probably the number one reason uh, for dental anxiety in adults. So they would say, and it's often some uh, experience that they had pretty early on in their life. So it's when they were little, whether it was the gas or whether, you know, they had this image of the dentist putting their knee on their chest to pull a tooth out or something. It's, it's often bad experiences that stay with them. And obviously, as you said, we don't do that now. We're a lot more gentle we're very we have lots of different things that we can use to treat patients who have anxiety but for them it's just overcoming that fear and I think with anxiety it's one thing that if you avoid going to the dentist it's only going to get worse so if there's if there's a condition such as decay or gum disease if it's treated quite early on the treatment is fairly minimal and non-invasive but the longer that's left the more advanced it's going to become and obviously the more complex the treatment will be So I think if patients leave it because they're scared to go to the dentist and then when they go, they need all this treatment doing, of course, their anxiety is only going to get worse, which is why I think it's so important to try and have prevention and have them come for their regular checkups to try and um, get over that fear so that when they do need treatment, they're in a much better place to, to accept that treatment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And with conditions like periodontal disease, you could, you know, be referred for a one course of treatment where 
um, I can see you and sedate you and do a, a, a non-surgical management a full mouth and a sedation but actually if that's not maintained um, if they don't keep going back for the maintenance for simple scaling without sedation then that's only going to get worse and there's not really much point engaging in the treatment in the first place and so the disease can progress so I definitely agree with you. Absolutely. So what kind of tools or what kind of management systems do we have to deal with anxiety, whether that's in general dental practice or whether in a, a community setting or a dental hospital? Um, so it, I think it will vary on the patient's phobia and the extremity of the phobia and anxiety. I think most people, when you talk about going to the dentist, do feel a, a sense of anxiety. Certainly when I um, asked my colleague to take my wisdom tooth out. I think I had quite a bit of anxiety. Maybe that's because I knew what was going on. Uh, <laughs> but it was fine, it was fine, it went fine. Um, I th in, gen in general practice, you know, when we're taught at dental school is, you know, general behaviour management techniques to help people um, try and relax in the chair. And I think building that relationship, finding out what patients like or don't like, giving them the sense of, you know, you are in actually control of what we're doing. If you want me to stop, all you have to do is put your hand up, do this, do that, and we will stop. Um, I think a lot of patients' anxieties come from their loss of control um, and not knowing what's going on in their mouth. So um, we can tailor our communication and our language to help specific patients. Some people don't want to know anything you're doing in the mouth. They say, just get on with it. Um, some people mm -hmm. want to know exactly what you're doing <laughs> but it's good to establish uh which which one of those patients are because if you do the opposite to the wrong one i'm sure that will just definitely. Heighten, uh, definitely. <laughs> um i'm a huge advocate for just time not rushing people uh breathing techniques uh gradual muscle relaxation all of these kind of non-pharmacological ways that we can help people manage not only dental anxiety but you know general anxiety if you're feeling quite anxious doing some nice breathing exercises the you know the cubic four four you know breathing for four seconds hold for four breathe out for four that's that's a very nice way of helping just calm people down and helping them relax um and all these are kind of self-hypnotic um suggestions as well calm music in the dental surgery and that's something that every dentist really can do um mm -hmm. it, in in community settings we also in the community dental services uh, they might have other ways to help people manage their anxieties um, so inhalation sedation so gas and air sedation using nitrous oxide uh, which is a nice really really nice um way to help people just relax a little bit who are quite who are quite anxious and of course they're breathing in a gas so that helping them with breathing exercises as well as the gradual muscle relaxation techniques can all be used in combination to help people feel more relaxed and comfortable in the dental chair um, then there's other forms of sedation like IV sedation we're using midazolam which is the most common drug that we use to help people feel more relaxed and sedated or a combination of drugs uh, depending on where you are but that tends to be a more um, complex and more advanced sedation technique that's offered in a hospital versus in a community but um, you mm -hmm. certainly some practices who get um, visiting anaesthetists to come and do the sedation for them who might offer that um, and in hospital one of the hospitals I work at we offer alongside sedation and general anaesthetics of putting people to sleep um, for their treatment um, psychological methods um, so we have a psychologist a dental psychology team um, who offer cognitive behavioral therapy for patients with 
anxieties and actually using that in combination sometimes the station um, can work really nicely to help people overcome uh, get overcome their anxieties I mean it's not just dentistry I'm seeing a, a patient you know uh, fit and generally um, fit and well young male and he was so anxious that he had a really bad needle phobia and obviously mm -hmm. the needle phobia is important for his dentistry but that also meant that he couldn't have routine blood tests or any other medical intervention and they wanted to assess him because he had some seizures but he wouldn't be able he wouldn't cooperate he wouldn't co he couldn't cope with having a blood test then because of his needle phobia um so with help of our psychology um psychology team um mm -hmm. he was able to manage that so it's not just the impact we have on their dental management but their overall health and medical management that can actually help them cope with um, overcome their phobias and um, so yeah that it you know it's not just dentistry I, I think that's a I think I've said like three times now it's not just dentistry <laughs> <laughs> no it's very important because I think like you're saying with anxiety it's often not specific to dentistry so a lot of people are anxious about dentistry but it could also be interlinked with um, general anxiety disorders and having anxiety for different things and um, certainly I think with anxiety I, I see a lot of patients who are really scared of the needles and then there's other patients who are really scared of the pain. So they don't mind the needle. So it's just about communicating to the patient and finding out what they're afraid of. And I often try and get them sort of used to the surgery. And I will always tell them the truth because I think if something's going to hurt, I'm never going to lie to them because it, they won't trust you. So I will say this may be a little bit uncomfortable, but this is the way that we say, so for example, if you're giving an injection, I would always say this is, might be a little bit uncomfortable, but then it means that it takes the pain away so that your treatment can be done painless. So I think once you establish trust and you communicate with them, then that, that's a good way to build, uh, build a relationship to be able to, to treat them and um, sort of maybe not eliminate, but reduce their anxiety. But, uh, it's really good that we have all these different modalities. So the, just to clarify, the, the inhalation sedation is where they're still awake, they're fully awake, but they're just a little bit more relaxed. And we offer inhalation sedation for, for children as well, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So for yeah. you still be able to talk and communicate, still in control. Um, so a lot of patients will like that over, for example, IV sedation while you are you are awake but it's a, a less it's a more profound type of sedation so um it's some people have would prefer one where they're a bit of a lighter form of sedation just helps them relax where they can still be you know be in control of everything rather than one where they don't really remember everything and they don't really know yeah. what's going on and is it with both types of sedation that they sort of don't particularly remember the procedure very much once they're out of it is that right um it's more iv sedation that you get the amnesic effect and that does vary on patients some patients will say i don't really remember too much just a few things maybe a few words that you might have said to me uh, whereas some people say i don't even remember coming to see you in like the first <laughs> as i said to you before i even had the sedation um so uh, i would say it's a bit like having a bit too few many gin and tonics but you don't get a hangover it's a little <laughs> um, so that's a good so, way of putting it yeah, I call it my gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, inhalation sedation, it, it, often you don't get as much of an amnesic effect, if any at all. It really, it really depends on the on the patient. Some people are very sensitive. Some people, so the gas and air sedation, we will um, start at a low level and work it up to where the patient feels comfortable um, to cope with the treatment. 
So um, some people will have a, only a very small amount to be able to say, I feel relaxed enough for you to carry on a treatment. Some people will need more. Um, and But there's still that control. You'll never have to, you know, there's that feeling. I don't know if you've ever had inhalation sedation yourself, but we always... Um, we do the training. I tend to I tend to be the volunteer who demonstrates the feeling <laughs> of what sedation is like because uh, it's quite a lovely feeling. But you know, once you're you've had enough, and you if so, our instructor would say, "Well, you're nice and relaxed now." And I say, "Would you like any more?" And I just know deep down, you know, actually, no. I, this is a nice level. I'm gonna. I feel nice and relaxed now. So it's it's you still have that constant dialogue, and you still are in control as a patient as well. I think that's an excellent point, actually, to let people know that a lot of the treatments that we do, like sedation in your case or um, local anesthesia, um, we actually try these on each other. And that's how we actually learn. So throughout dental school, we tried as many things as we could get away with on each other. So impressions, um, local anesthetic, sedation sometimes. We actually try this on each other so we know exactly how you feel. So I think that's a good place to be to tell the patient uh, exactly what they will be expecting and to tell them the truth <laughs> essentially um, and then general anesthetic is where they're completely asleep and that's a that's obviously the highest level that we can go to but obviously general anesthetic comes with its own risks so we wouldn't necessarily offer that as a first line treatment because I see a lot of patients coming in for say one filling and if they're anxious they'll say just knock me out or put me under to, to have the procedure done and that might not be the the best idea mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, because it is, it's a lot of, um, general anaesthetic isn't just turning up to your dental surgery and having a treatment, it's, uh, mm. okay, you need to be referred to a certain place, there's often a long waiting list, because um, we can't see the same capacity of patients into general anaesthetic that you can just, you know, with local anaesthetic, and definitely now, you, uh, it's particularly profound in our COVID area where um, we're really only seeing one patient per morning in, in, in our theatres, um, so we have to be really careful with our case selection um, of who gets that slot uh, one, one slot a week. Um, so, you know, there's a long waiting list and you'll have to be assessed often maybe once or twice. Um, and actually coming for your general anaesthetic, it's an all day thing often. You are an, an outpatient, so you don't have to stay in the hospital. But you'll have to, you know, starve, not have anything to eat or drink on the day of the procedure, um, come and wait for your slot, have your treatment. Then when you come around in recovery, actually, I mean, I haven't actually had a general anaesthetic, but having witnessed a lot of, uh, you know, hundreds of patients coming around after general anaesthetic, it's not, I don't think it's the most pleasant thing. You wake up a bit yeah. delirious, not quite certain where you are, surrounded by people who you may not have met before. Um, Often your mouth will feel funny, but you don't really, at that point when you're coming around, you're a bit not really sure why. Um, and, you know, you're probably really hungry at that point as well, if you're not eating all day. Yeah. Um, so there's all these things to case consideration. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the an, an anesthetic is essentially you're putting you to sleep, paralyzing all your muscles and getting the uh, machine to breathe for you. Um, so if you describe it like that, um, you can see the effects the high stress it will put on your body and actually the medical risks associated with having a general anaesthetic. It's not like just going for a very you know, simple procedure and um, your anaesthetist is, is getting a machine to breathe for you while you're asleep because you, you're paralysed, you know, not all the time, but generally. Um, so there's those risks that you have to explain to the patient. Of course, now there's always the added risk as well. It needs to be done in the hospital. You can't have the general anaesthetic um, outside of the hospital since to, uh, year, 
2000, there was legislation that said all general anaesthetic has, has to be done in a hospital. Um, and going to a hospital these days, they have to have that conversation is, is you, you have a risk of being exposed to COVID or other hospital-acquired infections. Um, mm -hmm. So if you can have your treatment done um, in a practice or community setting or in a primary care, um, that might be preferable right now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely a conversation to be had. I'd love to know your opinion, but obviously I wouldn't personally recommend a general anaesthetic unless there's extensive treatment that's needed. So say if a wisdom tooth needs to be removed or if a couple of easy teeth need to be removed, the patient is much better off having a bit of sedation to help their anxiety than to, than to have a general anaesthetic. Yeah, yeah. You have to weigh things all up. I mean, um, someone who's highly phobic already and anxious, if you know their treatment's going to be quite unpleasant if they've got a deeply impacted wisdom tooth that's stuck in the gum, um, then you know that's not going to be a particularly nice uh, procedure for them to have. Um, and so actually maybe then electing for a general anaesthetic might be kinder. So what kind of Natalie, what kind of advice would you have for someone who has dental anxiety and they just never been to the dentist? Because I see this time and time again where patients haven't been for say 10 years or they've never been to the dentist. So a 40 year old male came to see me a couple of weeks ago and he said he'd never been to the dentist. And when I examined him, he needed all of this work done. And, and they often present at a point where there's a lot going on. So obviously the treatment they need is quite advanced. So what advice would you give to someone who has dental anxiety? I think it's make that first step and access a dentist. I mean, that's easier said than done. Um, often it's, that's the hardest step, isn't it? Is actually practically going there rather than waiting for a problem. Because once you mm -hmm. wait for the problem, as you're saying, it's going to be much more difficult to treat. It's often going to be more painful. Um, and it'd be more difficult because at that point, you know, um, you have a time pressure of when you, you want to be seen. Um, whereas if you go out there and yes, if you do have a lot of work to be done, at least at that point, you can it can be staged depending on whether you have any symptoms or not, any, any pain or problems. Um, and you can take things more slowly. Um, I would say to patients that... Um, yes, you know, finding an NHS dentist, you go to the NHS website or ask for phone one on one or finding a private dentist, you can go in the similar reviews, Google reviews um, to find one. But um, I think personal recommendations is always a really good way to find um, someone you think you can trust. Um, and I think just communicate, don't be afraid to communicate that you're anxious. I mean, the amount of times that people come in, the first thing they say to me is, I'm terrified of the dentist. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not I'm not hugely offended by that I know some people might be um but I know it's not a personal thing it's and that's where your anxiety comes out often uh, just being honest and saying oh I don't like this I do like this um I I want to be in control I want to know exactly what you're doing I don't want to know anything um and um also if you haven't been to a dentist for a long time to expect that actually stabilizing your mouth might take a long time and um, it's not going to be one hour oh, one trip to the dentist and my, my mouth is fine I mean it'd be be lovely if it would but often if you haven't been to a dentist for any you know your whole life or even 10-20 years you know there's going to be some work that needs to be done so if you communicate that to your dentist that you're quite anxious they can talk to you through the options of what might be best for you and yeah that might be being sent on somewhere else to have a bit of sedation to stabilize your mouth but actually 
finding identity you can trust, you can build that relationship with, and if you are able to manage treatment with them, that's probably you know, a really good thing for you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a few things about dental anxiety as well as the treatment options we have to manage this issue. As we kept reiterating, the worst thing you can do is delay treatment because you will need treatment at some point and the worst thing you can do is be in a place where your anxiety is not controlled. Um, so please, please find a dentist you think you can trust and go and see them for an assessment. I would love to know what you thought of this episode, so please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Dr. Shadi Manicherry. And also, if you have any suggestions or feedback relating to the podcast, please let me know. There will be a new episode every week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode. And I can't wait to speak to you soon.